everybody and welcome back. We're going to have a few uh, weeks of Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival here in the month of November. And then starting in December, we're going to have a couple of in-person nights of uh, in-person Bible study and then our Blue Christmas service on Wednesday the 15th. But for this month, we'll be online. I'll be coming to you right here from the chapel. So welcome, one and all, to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival. This week, the lectionary reading comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. 1 Kings 19, 9 through 18. It's about our man, Elijah. At that place, Elijah came to a cave, and he spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they are seeking my life to take it away. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way, to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shephat of Abel-Menothah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Pardon me. Yet I shall leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, so here's Elijah. Elijah, who shows up again and again in Scripture, 
who, aside from perhaps Moses, to whom he is often compared, was the greatest of all prophets, who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven, <clears throat> who is considered a prophet of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. This week's passage opens with this phrase, at that place he came to a cave. Now this is very important because the place with the cave to which Elijah has come is not just any place, it is none other than Mount Horeb. The importance of this fact can hardly be overstated because Mount Horeb has other names, the most familiar being Mount Sinai. That is, Elijah has arrived at the mountain of God, the very mountain on which Moses, hundreds of years earlier, had received the law. It is the holiest of mountains, and Elijah undertakes a journey of 40 days and 40 nights to reach it. And when he does, he is exhausted and afraid, and he's also, by the way, depressed. Along the way, we learn before our passage that he expressed a desire to die. He was depressed. His fear has its roots in his role as a prophet. Hard work, risky work, being a prophet, and our hero has just about had it. Here is what's driving him into the wilderness. The nation of Israel, once unified, is now divided. The southern kingdom, Judah, has retained Jerusalem and all the customs associated with the temple and traditional Jewish religion. The northern kingdom has retained the name Israel, but has been severed from traditional religious life and the social cohesion that it brings. The capital of Israel is Samaria. Now the late monarch of the northern kingdom, King Omri, faced two problems. Number one, the internal stress of having lost Jerusalem and the temple, and two, the external stress caused by neighboring states like Phoenicia and Assyria. So, he solved the problem by arranging a marriage between his son Ahab and a woman named Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. Now, notably, Jezebel was also, also a priestess of Baal, the god of the Phoenicians. Also notably, she was not quite as diplomatic as Ahab. Well, Ahab eventually becomes king and Jezebel queen, and when this happens, a temple of Baal is built in Israel, in Samaria. And Jezebel imports a large entourage of priests and prophets of Baal to staff it. They staffed up. These moves encourage internal stability and religious stability and address this problem of internal cohesion, or rather the problem of internal incohesion. So Baal is overtaking Yahweh as the central God of Israel, and friends, it is excellent politics. But it is bad religion. Into this scene, back in 1 Kings 17.1, comes Elijah. Unlike other prophets, we don't know how the word of the Lord came to him, how he was called, or any other details, you know, about his backstory. We are simply told that Elijah had some hard words for Ahab. 
spoke truth to power along the lines of this. The Lord God of Israel lives and is a much better God than Baal, and to prove it, there's going to be a drought. Those are not verbatim words, but that was the essence of what Elijah said to King Ahab. The Lord God of Israel lives, is a much better God than Baal, and to prove it, there's going to be a drought. Several chapters later, he returns to Ahab and gives him another earful of prophecy and asks him to assemble all his priests and prophets. He wants to have a showdown with the prophets and priests of Baal. And you probably know what happens then. It's spectacular. You know, he gets out there, he challenges the priest of Baal to build an altar and bring fire down from the sky. So Baal would light the altar. Baal didn't show up. Elijah kind of uh, had some nice words with the prophets of Baal, a little bit of smack talk, kind of knocked them around verbally a little bit, making fun of their God. Elijah builds his altar, pours water on it, and fire comes down from the sky and lights it just like that. The bottom line is that Yahweh showed up and Baal doesn't. And the prophets and priests of Baal, the same ones imported from Phoenicia by Jezebel, they all end up slaughtered by the people at Elijah's direction. Now Ahab seems to take this in sort of philosophical stride, but Jezebel, Jezebel is not so easily cowed. She gets pretty steamed, and Elijah heads for the hills. In contrast to his boldness with the prophets of Baal, he is afraid, and he wanders the desert alone to Beersheba and beyond. And he travels for 40 days and 40 nights, which is sort of scripture standard time period signifying trial, spiritual trial. He wants to die. He has had enough. But thanks to divine provision, he's given enough food and water to reach the mountain of God. When he arrives at the mountain, he finds a cave and spends the night there. Now, those who compose the book of Kings and all early readers recognize that when it says Elijah rested in a cave at Horeb, it means that he rested in the cave at Horeb. And by the cave, I mean the one in Exodus where Moses crouched as God passed by. It's called a theophany when God shows up. It's like an epiphany, but a theological, a theophany. So it's clear that Elijah here is getting set up for a second theophany. There he is, 40 days and 40 nights in the cave. He's getting set up here for a second theophany at Sinai, a second showing up of God in that place. Here's what happens. He, he sleeps. Next day, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in that holy place. What are you doing here, Elijah? Asks the Lord. And Elijah's response is one for the ages. I have been very zealous for you, O Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, blah, 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 killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. 
I've been very zealous for you, God, but now they're trying to kill me. I alone am left. Elijah is depressed and full of self-pity and is really, frankly, kind of overstating his problem here. What he says is not even true. It's clear in 1 Kings that there are plenty of faithful worshipers of Yahweh remaining in Israel and that Elijah is certainly not the only prophet of the Lord left. Now the Lord in the Lord's wisdom does not reply to this. He lets uh, Elijah stew there in his own words. Instead, Yahweh tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain for I am about to pass by. Again, evoking the Exodus story. I am about to pass by. In which God passes by Moses outside the same cave on the same mountain. So Elijah goes. And behold, a great wind blows, splitting mountains and smashing rocks. But we are told God is not in the wind. An earthquake shakes the land, but God is not in the earthquake. Fire falls from heaven, but God is not in the fire. Now all of this stands in sharp contrast to what happened earlier on Mount Carmel when Elijah called fire down from heaven in a spectacular show of Yahweh's presence and power. This absence of God in the wind, in the earthquake, and in the fire, in the elements, this absence of God in these things also stands in bright contrast to Moses' experience at Sinai. In that earlier drama, the Lord appeared in precisely those elements of creation from which Yahweh is absent. For Moses, God was revealed as thunder and smoke and earthquake and fire, and at the same time, at the same, rather the same exact geographical location. And back then for Moses and for the Israelites, God was very much present in these things. So God is not present in the elements of earth and air and fire. Even nature, in all its power and beauty, is not a sufficient symbol for the Lord God. But Yahweh said he would come by, and Yahweh does. After all this noise and all this violence and all this commotion, Elijah hears a sound of sheer silence. Literally translated as a voice, a barely audible whisper. And the Lord was in the silence. And when Elijah hears it, he wraps his face in his mantle and stands at the entrance of the Now, there's a branch of theology not very well advertised. It's called apophatic theology. This branch of theology uh, emphasizes the otherness of God, the ways in which God is unlike us as creatures and even unlike creation itself. It seeks God not in sound, in words, or in the elements, it seeks God in silence and empty places. Now, in truth, silence and empty places are just other images. And those are also limited. But ultimately, apophatic theology is skeptical of all images of God and values direct and intimate divine knowledge. It is 
theology often emphasized by mystics who are known for their direct encounters with God. On paper, it sounds a little weird and abstract, but it is a foundational and influential branch of theology, and our present story is one of its central texts. The Lord God, beyond all elements, beyond all images, may be found most truly in silence. Sometimes God comes into our lives in loud, obvious ways, and sometimes God comes in still, quiet ways. Elijah knows that sometimes it is the small, quiet ways that are the most powerful, the most awe-inspiring, the most foundational for a life of faith. My mom tells me of a story time she took a helicopter ride in Alaska and landed in some high and remote place. Once she stepped out and the helicopter stopped humming, she was engulfed in a vast silence. Actually, maybe it was a plane, but it hardly matters. When she stepped out of the plane, out of the helicopter, she was engulfed in a vast silence. Snow-covered mountains marching off to the margins of the world in every direction. The uncanny combination of great scale and deep silence put her immediately in a state of awe. She sensed her own small self in the face of the landscape. She was humbled. So, I imagine, was Elijah's posture before the Lord when he encountered God in silence. He stands there, his face wrapped in cloth, stunned by the silence, and the Lord asks again, Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah offers the same lame, self-pitying response. And again, Yahweh does not engage Elijah's words. Instead, he gives Elijah some instructions. Go, anoint a new king and also anoint your replacement. You are done now, Yahweh seems to say. Just as Elijah's early work was spectacular and obvious, his late work is quiet and hidden, and it is this small, quiet work that ensures the survival of a remnant in Israel. The Lord works in small, quiet, hidden ways for the Lord, for the Lord is small, quiet, and hidden. Elijah's career is stressful but short, stressful and short. He actually does very little active prophetic work. All in all, he speaks about 500 words to kings and queens and priests and also to the people. For comparison, this Bible study is about 1,700 words long. So in the Bible, Elijah speaks in total less than a third of the words I am speaking to you now, and only about a third of those are to people in power. Yet, as I have said, it is Elijah who shows up again and again in Scripture, who stands among the greatest of all prophets, who, like Jesus, ascended into heaven, who was considered a prophet in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It is as we, have, as we see so many places in the Gospels and other, and other places in the Bible, it is the small, seemingly inconsequential things that make the most lasting difference in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. I'll see y'all next week.